Tonight's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 121, which can be found in the bulletin and also on the screens. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Mike, uh, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown. And if this is your first time with us, I want to add my welcome as well. And I want to encourage you to get plugged in. Uh, What happens on Sundays is important, but what happens in between Sundays is just as important, and we would love for you to be a part of that. Happy New Year, and uh, hopefully this one will be better than last one. You know, it's interesting, the psychology of uh, New Year uh, is powerful. It's just another day, but it feels like a new beginning, a new chapter, a new book, and there's anticipation and hope. But we need hope better than our own a foundation better than our own, a word more powerful than our own. And that's why tonight we turn to Psalm 121, a song. Praise God for songs, because propositional truth can shape our minds, but songs shape our hearts. And I think God is after both. That's why he's given us Apostle Paul and King David, epistles and psalms for us to chew and meditate on and to delight in the word. And so hopefully we can do that together tonight and find hope as we look ahead to this new year. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we come now and ask that you would open up our hearts to not only hear but believe your truth. Lord, give us faith so that we can receive your word, the gospel, the good news, and that we could receive Christ and walk away from this place transformed Into the likeness of Christ our Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. 2021 was a hard year for my family, and uh, that's putting it lightly. It was easily the most difficult season for us. As many of you know, uh, Grace's father's unexpected passing was just the first domino to fall. From there, Grace had shingles, which I hear is more painful than giving birth. I can't speak from experience, but that's what I hear. Our two cars died. One of them, fittingly, in a McDonald's (laughs) drive-thru. Saying a lot about our family's dietary habits. (laughs) And before Thanksgiving, I won't go into too much detail, I received a diagnosis that left me devastated. I remember sitting in the clinic trying to process the doctor's words, and after a while, it, just, I sounded, it sounded like I was underwater. I couldn't make heads or tails of anything she was saying to a point where I had to ask her just to stop. And uh, I needed a minute to process what I just heard. 
I've never felt so helpless before. Have you been there? It doesn't take much, does it? And over time, shock gave way to frustration and eventually frustration to bitterness. I'll be honest, I became bitter at God. It felt like God was bullying me and I couldn't take it anymore. All I could pray was help me. I didn't have the words and certainly not the spiritual fortitude to put together a coherent prayer. But as soon as I would pray, help me, I was overwhelmed with lies about God. Lies that began in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say? I don't know if you feel or have felt this or know from experience, but I felt like I had spiritual personality disorder. One moment, I'm trying very hard to hold on to the promise that God always works for my good. And then immediately after that, mocking myself for trying to believe. It was the closest thing to what I would call a dark night of the soul for me. And I know I'm not alone. We've all been there. 2021 might have been that year for you. But here's the good news. The one I've come to discover yet again. God enters our mess. He enters our brokenness. He understands and sympathizes with our discouragement and despondency. And he offers us a better hope. He does not rebuke us. The Bible says a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. Why? Because he is no stranger to our struggles and trials. In fact, he is familiar with suffering and pain. He is the great high priest who sympathizes with us, woos us with his kindness, and gives us grace for every trial. And in this new year, I'm sure many of us are weary and anxious, but we have hope, a better foundation, a lasting word, and he who calls us is faithful. He will do it, and he will see us through. And that's what Psalm 121 reminds us of. So let's take a look together at two things. First, let's take a look at the pilgrim's question. Surprisingly, The pilgrim in Psalm 121 lifts his eyes in the direction of Jerusalem and doesn't feel awe and praise, but fear. It's hard for us to understand this because in our reform circles, we say things like that church is not a building, but the people and rightfully so. But that is not how the Old Testament people of God understood the temple. The temple was nothing short of the very glory of God on earth, a material representation of God's presence with his people. The temple, when it functioned properly, offered forgiveness of sin, the restitution of sinner, fellowship with God, the forgiveness of sins and transgressions, the blessings and the favor of God, so on and so forth. It was not just a symbol, but it really represented all of those things because God dwelt there. So why is a psalmist afraid? 
He fears the dangers lurking along the way. Inclement weather, treacherous terrain, predatory animals, and bandits. The Bible gives us a peek into the dangers of travel in ancient world. Jesus, if you remember, sets up the parable of the Good Samaritan with what was then common knowledge. In Luke 10, verse 30, he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Mugging was so common on this 17-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho that it used to be called the path of blood. The audience, as they listened to Jesus set up the parable, didn't bat an eye because of the violence. Instead, they questioned the man's judgment. What was he thinking or not thinking? He should have known better than to travel those roads alone. Even though the pilgrim was afraid, he didn't stay there. He wasn't paralyzed by fear. The psalmist lifts his eyes to the hills, as verse 1 says. This is a prayer, an act of faith. And undoubtedly, when he looked to the hills, he saw pagan idols that lined the high places as it was customarily at the time. These idols promised the very things his heart longed for. Protection, guidance, blessing, salvation. It would have been easy for him to place his faith in these idols and their promises, but he does not. Instead, he looks past them and places his faith in the Lord. The psalmist answers his question in verse 2. He says, My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is his confession of faith, that his hope is not in the mountains, but in the God who created them. That his hope is not in the idols that sat on these high places, but God who came low to be with his people. That his hope is not in Jerusalem or the temple or any other expressions of religion, but God who offers himself to his people. His hope is in the Lord. Whenever the Lord is written in small caps, it refers to God's personal name, Yahweh, which was given to Moses in the book of Exodus. The psalmist is intentional. He makes a connection between Israel's journey then and his. With this confession of faith, he calls to mind Israel's journey, the Exodus story where Yahweh brought Israel out from the Egyptian bondage, sustained them through the wilderness, and delivered them to the promised land. And you can almost picture the pilgrim rehearsing this narrative, going over the details of his story, and coming to a place of peace and hope. Let me just say to all the pilgrims here in this sanctuary, it's good to recall those steps and to remember the past faithfulness of God. In the midst of all that has happened in 2021, it's easy for us to fix our eyes on these tough and difficult things that make the headlines. But we must fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, because this pilgrim is all of us. Our journey is filled with trials. And that shouldn't surprise us because we live in a broken world 
outside of Eden. We're fighting a global pandemic, only three years old, and hopefully no more. We're experiencing an economic recession as a nation, many battling unemployment, and some even struggling with personal insolvency. Some of us are no strangers to long seasons of spiritual doubt and discouragement where we feel like God abandoned us. Fear can take root and cripple our faith. And it is in these moments that we must resist the temptation to turn to ourselves and our resources as our salvation. We must look to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith, with hope and expectancy and with great confidence that he is greater than all of our trials. That his promises are for me. Isn't it true how we can speak God's promises to others with great confidence, but sometimes we have a hard time believing them for ourselves? No, his promises are yes and amen to you because of Christ and his finished work. He is our powerful helper who comes to our aid in the moment of weakness, in the midst of our trials. He proves himself to be faithful. He is our God. And if you ever wonder, where is my help? Who do I turn to? What can I lean on? The psalmist invites you to fix your gaze on this God, the Lord, Yahweh, the Deliverer. He is with you and closer to you than you think, and he offers himself to you even now. Second, let's look at the priest's blessing. The psalmist's question, where does my help come from, basically frames up the rest of the psalm and helps us to understand the details of the psalmist's assurance. Starting in verse 3, the pronouns I and my are replaced with you and your and pivots into what scholars believe is a priestly blessing uh, for the pilgrims. It's basically a benediction. And the main idea in the rest of the psalm is couched in the Hebrew word shamar, which means keep or keeper. And here, the psalmist is trying to highlight the fact that our God is the covenant keeper. He is faithful to his promises, and he will do as he has said. And there are several ways that he paints this for us through different metaphors. First, he reminds us that our God offers his protection. Verse 3 and 4, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. These words echo the story found in 1 Kings chapter 18, where prophet Elijah mocks the priests of Baal, saying, maybe Baal is sleeping. Maybe he's taking a bathroom break And you need to do more to arouse him and get his attention. You remember that story? Because Baal was supposed to be the god of fire. And so they built an altar. And they had a contest, a showdown, if you will, to see who really is the one true God. And Elijah basically says to the 
the priests of Baal, why don't you go ahead and first and see if you could get your God to send fire down from heaven to consume this sacrifice that we just placed on the altar. And after many hours, there is nothing. Silence. And you know what Elijah did? He said, let's uh, up the stakes here. Let's uh, pour some water. Not just a little bit of water, but let's just pour buckets of water on the sacrifice and on the altar. And he looks to the heavens. And with a simple prayer, he says, Lord, remember your covenant. And turn back the people's hearts to you. You see, it was not God who forgot his promise, but it was his people. And in his mercy, he meted out discipline. And through hardships and trial, God reminded them of the covenant and the covenant blessing that could be theirs should they repent and return. And God poured down fire and consumed not only the water, the sacrifice, but the altar and everything around it, proving that he indeed is the covenant-keeping God. You see, God is a watchman guarding the city. He does not ever grow weary or tired or slumber, but he is vigilant. His eyes are on you at all times. And just when you think, God, where are you? Aren't you seeing this? God says, yes. And for some of us, we have a hard time reconciling the fact that God could be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. How can this be? If God is who he claims to be, yet there's so much pain and struggle, not only in my life, but in this world, how do you make sense of this? Well, I would suggest that God, who knows all things, who is all-powerful and all-good, allows hardship in this world for a darn good reason. Just like a parent would go, would put their child through some challenges and difficulties for their own benefit, God sometimes walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. But he's always with us. He's near, as we will see. I want you to know, people of God, that when you find yourself in those moments where you're questioning God's goodness, his knowledge, his power, he is working around the clock for your good. In this very moment, even, he's doing thousands of things to bring about glory to himself and for your good. Do you believe that? Because he is. Second, we see his presence. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. Again, there is that word. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The word shade in verse 5 has two Old Testament references. First, it takes us back to the book of Exodus where God's presence took on the form of a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And these pillars were a constant reminder of God's faithful presence with his people. That God was always with them, 
night and day, through hardships and trial, through the mundane, God was always with his people. And you may remember that God's people weren't exactly obedient and faithful. No, they were always looking back at Egypt. They were remembering all the meat and the vegetable they had for free, which is not true. They paid for it with their lives. Yet they longed to go back to Egypt to have those things because they missed it so much without realizing all that lay ahead of them. Despite their rebellion, their complaining, their pride, God was with them and he saw them through. And this is indeed good news for all of us. God is faithful when, when we're not. When we don't measure up. God is faithful to his word. Second, the word shade takes us back to the book of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 6, where we read, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Talk about a reluctant prophet. Jonah, he's a weird cat. Can I say that? He was a weird dude. You have stories of prophets in the Old Testament who were faithful, put their lives on the line to embody the word, right? The word of God and called Israel back to their covenant. And then you have Jonah, who was doing everything he could in his power to run the other way. And so you know the story. He ends up in Nineveh and preaches probably the lamest sermon ever. And yet there is a national revival. The entire city repents and turns to the Lord. And Jonah's hoping just maybe God would destroy this nation. So he goes outside of the city limits, sits by the hillside with his arms crossed, probably counting down the minutes before their doom. But then something happened. The sun. It got really hot. And he complained. And it wasn't just, oh God, this is little, can you turn the heat? No, he said, it is so bad that I would rather die right now. And so God, out of mercy, provided a shade. The Lord is your shade. Do you see how patient our God is? Slow to anger, abounding in love. I picture all of us to be that toddler, frustrated and angry that we can't have every toy in the toy section. So we're beating on our parents' chest. You know that scene? It's in those moments God draws us closer. It's almost as if he wants us to feel his heartbeat, to know his love, his compassion, his comforting presence, our shade. See, the Lord is near. He is closer to us than even our very shadow. And he gives us the very best gift the gift of himself. He is the great treasure, the pearl 
of great prize. He is simply the better. Third, he offers deliverance. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Up to this point in the psalm, the psalm is focused on God's protection over a particular journey. But here in verse 7, the psalmist expands and speaks the scope of God's deliverance, which includes everything in the present and everything in the future. That's not a typo. It literally says everything, all, both now and in the days to come. And the message is simply this. Our Lord, our God, the creator of heaven and earth, the keeper of Israel has bound himself with a blood oath to personally and persistently care for you. I learned this yet again in my version of the dark night of the soul, that God is not the bully. The enemy is. He strikes with lies to not only distract us, pull us away from this God who gives himself to us, to blind us to his goodness so that we will no longer see and hear the promises that were spoken and proven on the cross. You see, the enemy seeks to kill steal and destroy. That's his nature. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. And he will seize every moment to plant seeds of doubt in us, to turn us away from our God. But that's not who he is. In my dark night of the soul, as I wrestle to believe, I couldn't answer the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why does it feel like I'm getting beat up? Why does it feel like God has singled me out? I didn't really have any answers. But I did have the cross and the empty tomb. As Tim Keller once said, you may not know the reasons why, but you know that it's not because he doesn't love you. And even then, it was a struggle to believe. You know, you've been there. I know it. That's spiritual battle, isn't it? To overcome the battle in our minds and for our hearts. To hold on by faith, the truth. And if that's where you are today, I want you to know that God, he's not the bully. He is your deliverer. He rescues you. And he gives you life. The cross and the empty tomb prove that for us once and for all. Lastly, let's look at his promise. In verses 7 and 8, The verb changes from the present to the future. The Lord will. He will. The Lord will from this time forth and forevermore. He will keep you 
forever. There is no catch and release with God. When he made his promise to be our God, he meant it in the fullest sense. There are no conditions that say, well, if you don't measure up, then too bad. You see, he's not fickle. Where we have to do enough good things to appease his wrath. No, for us who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. And God's word over you is love. And if you are hearing anything other than that love from our God, that it's a lie. If your God says to you, you're not good enough, you fail too many times, good luck in this new year. My goodness, I hope it's better than the last one. That is a lie. Because his banner over you, his people, his bride is love. And he shouts that from the mountaintop over and over and over again. He will hold on to you. He will keep you, both now and forevermore. Let's close with this thought. Psalm 121 is a part of a group of psalms known as the Pilgrim Songs or the Songs of Ascent. These psalms were traditionally sung by pilgrims who ascended the road up to Jerusalem for the three annual festivals in the temple, like the Passover feast. Each psalm in the Songs of Ascent has its unique message, as we saw, but if you study the Songs of Ascent as a literary unit, you will see a gradual upward movement from the pits to praising God for his goodness. Now, we can't look at all 15 of these psalms, but I want to highlight just several of them. Psalm 120 begins uh, with the pilgrim in exile, living away from the presence of God under enemy, uh, under, uh, enemy oppression. It's a song of lament, if you will. And the psalmist cries to be near the presence of God, to be near the temple in the presence of God to worship. And Psalm 121 reminds the pilgrims that God is their helper, to whom they must lift up their eyes. Psalm 132 is a prayer for the establishment of the forever king, the promised son of David, because the psalmist understands that all of these things that he is talking about, all these things that these songs are pointing us to is wrapped around this king, the son of David, and no other. Only he can establish these things for God's people. And so it's a prayer for this king to come and reign. Psalm 133 then pictures the unity and peace that await God's people in that kingdom when the Son of God comes and establishes glory on earth. And Psalm 134, anticipating that day, explodes with praise and blesses God for his goodness and blessings. On his final way to Jerusalem to celebrate what would have been his final earthly Passover feast, Jesus 
sang the Psalms of Asset. Psalm 120 would have reminded him of the situation that he entered, a world of bondage and decay, people away from the presence of God. It was his mission to come to deliver the people from their exile. And as he was getting nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, he would have sang Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? He knew the very events that awaited him. And he looks past the idols that line the hills. And even the, even the city and the temple itself. And he had his eyes fixed on his God who made heaven and earth. And as he got to this latter half of Psalm 121, he was reminded that it is God who will watch over his every step. That it was God who will be with him that he will be closer to him than even the shadow that is attached to him, and that it would be this God who will keep him forever and ever. And Jesus walked into Jerusalem, singing this psalm confidently, knowing that his Father will make good on these promises. And now, because of Christ and what he went through and what he experienced in his father's faithfulness to him, he says to all of us, the people of God, whatever it is that we're going through, hey, nothing will be able to separate you from my love. Nothing will be able to separate you. Angels, demons, Life, death, nothing in all creation, including even you and your stubborn unfaithfulness will be able to separate you from my love. As we look ahead to this new year, I don't know about you, but I am cautiously optimistic. I'm not sure if things will get better, but I know my God is good, and he will keep me through and through. And I pray that this would be your hope as you begin your journey in 2022. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these songs that shape our faith. Thank you, Christ, for giving your life to claim us as your beloved. We know that you have your hold on us and nothing can separate us from your love. Help us to remember that, rest in that, live out of that in this new year. We're going to be tempted to believe otherwise. I prayed, we pray that you would remind us, that you would draw us near to your heart.